0: Today is Thursday, December 29th, 2016, and you're listening to Episode 10, Cutovers, on Infotrek. Hey everybody, welcome back to Infotrek. I'm here with uh, Derek and Mike, and our uh, topic of the day is cutovers. And let's hop into the news, the first news item that's here is uh an Amazon Echo has uh sort of been subpoenaed uh in a murder case there's a a story in BBC that I was looking at earlier today where uh there was there was a murder of somebody in in like a personal residence and there was an Amazon Echo within uh, earshot that the uh, The authorities are trying to subpoena Amazon to get the recordings out of that device, and amazon amazon's been turning them down Mike, what do you think
1: so i thought I thought the story was pretty interesting, right I mean I think that this is a sort of a a new thing that people don't really realize that exists on devices like this and even phones um, like the new google phone and um and the the newer iPhones where Siri or you know the Google assistant is on all the time listening for you to say siri do something for me and the only way that can happen is if it's listening to everything right so where are those recordings being sent and what's the retention policy can somebody actually get access to them um you know it it makes for really interesting situations when something happens like this it's like do do the police really have a right to this data um or you know who else has access to it that we don't really know about I, i don't think anybody really understands that everything they say around this device is being recorded and, uh, you know, the article two, I think one of the, the interesting things, well, two interesting points from it that I found were that they said a detective actually found a way to get some information from the local device. So some sort of logging or something, they didn't say what it was specifically, but Amazon's stance was that there's no data that's stored on the device. So I'm curious to see if more details come out around what it was they were able to extract Um, you know, maybe like unknowingly to the consumer, there is actually things happening there that shouldn't be. And then the other thing is they mentioned that there was some other evidence that they got from a smart water meter um, about somebody, you know, potentially using water to wash the crime scene or something right after it occurred. And it just kind of like makes you think about all of the, uh, you know, all of the things that are recording information around us at this point that we don't really even know about. Like, I'm sure, you know, while somebody could, probably determine that the echo is recording all the time they're probably not thinking about their water company monitoring um you know with with really precise yeah. logging when water is used and when it's not and you know what that could potentially mean to them trying to cover something up so it's um you know it's good and bad i think because it number 1 it, it gives us information to prevent stuff like this but you know at some point that information could be used against you and i, I don't think we really can even like fathom all the things that are watching us or recording our actions at this point to even like make a, a pre a premeditated attempt to do something anonymously. Derek, how about you?
2: Yeah, well, when I first read the article, I thought maybe the detective said, "Hey Alexa, who killed the guy in the hot tub?" But apparently, that didn't work. <laughs> um, you know, it definitely re- kind of reminds me of that case a while back with Apple and the 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 uh, you know the uh, sheriff's department trying to get access to. Uh, the recordings off of that. Yes, and, yeah, right? exactly. It was actually kind of local here for us. Um, and right. then, you know, Apple was very much staying the ground on the whole thing. And, you know, I think uh, that's kind of good on, you know, t- to Mike's point, I could see good and bad on it, right? Like it's good that they're protecting kind of like the consumer and things like that. But it's also bad at the end of the day if it could help either clear someone or put someone, you know, behind bars for murder or something like that, then, you know, that's there's also that side of it. But, yeah, from a te- technology standpoint, I think we're kind of getting into the you know, the whole smart home revelation, right, where you know, we kind of have these all these systems talking to each other. You have, like, your Nest and your, you know, your thermostat and your smart water heaters and your smart solar grid and your smart XYZ. And, you know, with everything listening behind the scenes, it's, you know, people don't realize that. I'm sure that most people realize that they're recorded almost any time they set a foot in public at some point in time, you know, whether it's ATM machines or traffic lights or whatever. But, you know, now we're taking that and kind of bring it to the home, which is a whole other can of worms. So, um, you know, I do know that. I think I think it's Amazon that has the option of where the Echo is either always on or like a tap to talk kind of thing. So, I mean, it kind of defeats some of the purpose. But at the end of the day, it's, you know, how paranoid do you want to be with security and whatnot? And, you know, to, to Mike's point, I can't really see the Amazon Echo recording you know, hours and hours worth of just raw data, I think it kind of picks up and it's listening for certain trigger words. And I'm sure at some point it gets tricked and it is, you know, thinks it hears a word and maybe records a few seconds beforehand and, you know, things like that. So it's, uh, it's definitely kind of this emerging market. It's going to be interesting how all this, you know, privacy and security comes into play. And I'm sure there's people out there that will never have anything this high tech in their home because they, you know, are, are that paranoid about what might be used against them. So we'll see.
1: It's interesting too. Like, what what happens if somebody hacks into that that data? Right. I mean, you could you could look at somebody's like behavior patterns and like what time they get home from work every day because you can hear a door opening or you know some lights being turned on or something like that. I mean, the, the possibilities to like actually like profile people to you know commit crimes or do other things is, is pretty tremendous. Oh yeah, big time. Like I have a Nest thermostat, and and that's that's like that's itmo
0: is figuring out your schedule like when you're gone and when you come home you know and and what your routine is so that it can try and turn itself off and and save you energy while you're you know not cool your home down while you're there and it tries to learn that automatically so that some of these devices may not be intended to do those kinds of things but some of them you know that's that's actually their design is to is you know to to dynamically learn about uh, how you act and and what your routine is just so that they can operate efficiently
1: it's and the thing is like you don't we're worried about the external threat right of somebody hacking in and getting access to the data like intentionally from the outside but think about you know are these companies really when they're building these products thinking about internal safeguards like who working at amazon has access to that data is it some tier one help desk guy who's like trying to figure out whether the girl that lives down the hall from him is at home or what she's doing in her bedroom when she's there by herself like that that's a little creepy right like the Snowden kind of factor of like am i getting access to data that i shouldn't have and what do i do with it right like are we gonna have some other you know dump on dark web of all these amazon recordings at some point that somebody got a hold of
0: yeah same thing i just i I also just recently got a uh, ring doorbell and that's like even more so the case you know it's like uh totally constantly recording and and watching what's going on outside your house and watching people that walk up to your door it's it's a, it's it's a different uh it's a different time that's for sure so uh next up here is is a news article from the Verge about a Netherlands court that ordered T-Mobile to to effectively shut down their free music service that they offer to subscri- T-Mobile subscribers, saying that it's a uh, um, it flies in the face of net neutrality and is uh, unfair to um, to music providers like maybe Pandora or uh, some of their competitors, you know, by offering T-Mobile's already subscribers free music, um, that it's actually a breach of net neutrality. This this stood out to me because it seemed a little bit counter counterintuitive. It seems to hurt the consumer at least in the short run. I guess short sightedly, it does seem to hurt the consumer to shut down free services offered by a by a service provider. But at the same t- time, I kind of get where they're going. I don't know, Derek. What do you think? This is this is something I'm I'm kind of on the fence for.
2: Yeah, you know, like when I first started kind of hearing about, you know, Verizon's and T-Mobile's kind of doing these, hey, you know, you can get unlimited quote-unquote data to, like, I don't know, Netflix. Or I think I think the good one is, like, AT&T offering, like, through their, their DVR service from, like, um, you know, DirecTV. I thought, man, that's actually pretty smart from a packaging perspective, right? Because from the sales side, it's a great way to bundle your services. It's like, hey, you know, you're already writing our network. Let's go ahead and just give you you essentially free data or unrestricted access to what they already own. So from the sales side, I can totally see the appeal, and it's actually pretty genius at it. Um, But, you know, from the other side of it, yeah, it kind of puts a hamper on things, right? Because like you said, it's like, hey, now you're almost kind of dominating and saying, hey, use our service X over service Y. And it, it kind of like almost reminds you of like back in the day with like Netscape versus Internet Explorer, right? Where... You know, there was a whole bunch of heat for, um, you know, Windows or Microsoft essentially throwing IE on their boxes versus Netscape. And then all that kind of legal trouble happened behind the scenes. It's almost like the same thing, right? They're kind of just giving it away or, you know, enticing you to use their service versus, like, shopping around and having, you know, four or five different providers. So, I don't know. I mean, I I can kind of see it both ways. We'll see how it plays out. But it's very interesting that I think it was like the Netherlands had a very strict – kind of ruling against it so it'll be interesting to kind of yeah. follow and see what happens
0: yeah i mean it's kind of like uh, I, I could compare it to like the electric uh, like the electricity company saying you know if you buy and use our light bulbs like you know we'll mark up your service a little bit but as long as you're using our light bulbs they're free to you like you can just you know you can take as many light or the electricity is free right or, or somehow trying to steal a market that they that they're not in at all away from a competitor simply because they're the one supplying the you know the energy or the resources required to consume that third-party service and i can see how it's i can see how it you know can definitely screw with competition in a free market but at the same time i don't know as a consumer it does seem a little strange mike how about you what do you think
1: so I th- I think I'm kind of confused by this. And, and I probably, you know, I haven't read all of the net neutrality stuff, like what was officially proposed in the bill and everything. But I think that, you know, the way I understood net neutrality, um, the argument against it is that um, we're really trying to prevent content providers from having to pay for access to the network, right? So that would effectively prohibit small you know, small can like nonprofits and other folks who don't have a ton of money because they're just starting out, uh, from being able to access the, you know, or being able to, to have consumers access their services over the internet. I think in this case, it's, it's sort of the opposite, right? T-Mobile is likely paying royalties to the musicians or the recording companies whose music is streaming over their network. Uh, so they're not prohibited from accessing the network, right? They're actually encouraged, um, they're they're giving their their consumers another way to get their service or their music um, so I, I don't really see who's being hurt in the in the paradigm that they're arguing against right it, it's uh, except for the other cell phone competitors and or, or and, what about like
0: i think i think who who we could say is being hurt by this is somebody like pandora or spotify right where right. if you offer if if you offer to your subscribers a free music service now your you're cutting out a competitor that is in th- that well, does not have their own service provider network but you know is a third party service uh, is a uh, does provide a service that requires the network that uh, that their data moves over
1: Yeah but it, let, let's be objective about that right I mean T-Mobile didn't go out and build its own content streaming platform and then go contract with all the record companies to get the content right They most likely right. tapped into someone like Pandora or someone else as a partner to deliver that service over their network. So uh, effectively, that's capitalism, right? They they went out and brokered a deal and and got a competitive advantage against the other networks out there. And, uh, you know, shame on Pandora for not being at the table when T-Mobile was looking for somebody to to partner with. I, I, I don't see what's, what the argument is in this particular case, because I don't see anyone who's really being, you know, prohibited from making money or, you know, providing content to consumers who are on the network. So I, you know, I, I, I don't think it's really a, a valid argument. And if it is in somebody's mind, I probably don't agree with it.
0: <laughs>
1: Fair enough. Yeah. I'm, I'm sort of on the fence of, uh, for this,
0: uh, anyway, I, I, I'm, I, 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 I feel like I probably don't understand it as well as I should, but then again this is uh this is this hasn't come to the United States yet at least not in this form. Yeah, and I mean I'll be interested to see when it does.
1: I think it's kind of like making the argument that we have um privatized healthcare and then saying like, "Oh, well you partnered with this hospital or this health system exclusively as an insurance provider." Um, to give give the participants in the insurance plan better access to that i mean i, I don't see how anybody can say that's like that, that's you know that's impeding anybody else's ability to get health care or anything like that right or it's kind of kind of the same yeah. thing right so I, I i i don't know i don't get the argument fair enough
0: all right so next up here is uh is an incident in uh in Thailand where facebook uh popped up their safety check feature for those of you that don't that don't know Facebook's safety check feature is a uh, is a notification and, and sort of a a questionnaire for any mobile users who happen to happen to be in the area of some kind of major catastrophe uh, to be able to check in and let all of their friends on Facebook know that they're okay and that they've you know that they sur- survived whatever may have happened. Uh but apparently Facebook automates this uh the initiation of this safety check for uh for users and Facebook had a uh an incident in Thailand where their algorithms caught a uh 2015 so a year old news article that uh was talking about I believe it was a bombing in an airport if I'm not mistaken but it initiated this Facebook this uh safety check feature and falsely alerted people to uh sort of some fake news um, or at least some old news that people didn't realize was not old. Um, this is sort of a an example of a failure of automation, or at least a failure of Facebook to not run these kinds of things through human eyes and, and double check them that way before they actually uh, send out an alert to mobile phones. Mike, what do you think? Do you think this is uh, something that we're going to see more of?
1: I mean, I think it's great that Facebook provides this service and concept, right? I mean, and I'd rather have a false alarm than no alarm at all. So I think, you know, in situations where there actually is a crisis, I don't, yeah, it might've been an annoyance to people or got some people riled up because there was this fake instance of it. But just like any piece of programming or software, we have to have some failures or some test cases and bugs actually improve upon so when things like this happen for me i think it's probably a good thing because it's only going to cause them to take a look at what works and then more accurately actually offer the service when there's a real incident where somebody can use it so i mean i I, you know it probably raises some awareness that that you know it needs improvement or it needs bugs looked at and overall I, i don't think anybody was arguably hurt by the the occurrence yeah that's that's true derek what do you think
2: yeah, I mean, it sounds like it was a glitch, right? I mean, if you break it down, it was a bug. You know, they fully automated it. It scraped a bad article, caused a little bit of disruption. But, you know, to Mike's point, in the end, I think it's way better to have something rather than nothing. Um, I think it's actually a really awesome feature. Um, I remember when I first read about this uh, almost a couple of years ago, it seems. I think it was after, like, a major earthquake or some hurricane event, they kind of announced this. Um, it's a really cool way, like you said, to let people know, hey, I'm good, you know, I'm, you know, don't worry about me and, you know, we're still alive kind of thing. So I think as it gets more, you know, more involved and and more, you know, advanced, um, you know, maybe adding, like you said, a a pair of of human eyes to it is not a bad idea, especially for something major like a bombing or earthquake or a hurricane or whatever that event might be. Um, It would probably take someone, you know, all of five minutes to verify, yeah, this is like a legit, you know. Uh, catastrophe, if, if you will, and then just check the box and, and release it. Versus having it fully automated. To me, that seemed a little maybe aggressive. Um, but you know, hey, it's Facebook and they want to push the envelope, so more power to them.
1: Facebook actually said in the in the news article they were quoted saying that they rely on trusted third party sources for the information. Right, so it's interesting to me that a company that's based in social media and crowdsourced information doesn't actually verify what they perceive as an event from the third party with some sort of you know interaction on media that they own um from users in that geography right so if facebook if you're listening like listen to your users and with the fact that the event's actually occurring before you post it maybe an easy first step for you to take
0: yeah that's a, that's a good idea right they're they're probably going to get uh very up-to-date news from users on the ground that are actually there talking about it. That's not a bad way to, to verify these kinds of things. Cool. So next up, we wanted to uh, to go over some some of the movies, the, some of the sci-fi movies. I think we're all sci-fi fans here. We wanted to go over some of the movies. Derek, you, you were talking earlier today with Mike and I about uh, Star Wars Rogue One. I haven't seen it yet, but I've heard nothing but good things. Mike, I don't think you have, but Derek, what what was your experience seeing that movie? Spoiler
2: alert: There is a Death Star. I'm no, just kidding. I think everybody knows that. Um, it was good. It was kind of like you know the first time seeing like a non, I would say, Star Wars movie. You know, it kind of held its own as its own little spinoff and, and precursor, and it, I think, it told the story very well of you know leading up to the events of the movie. You know, it comes before. Um, there definitely was a little bit of cheesiness to it, right? You know, like there's a little too much TGI for me in a couple parts and. To me, that kind of turns me off. When there's, you know, Star Wars is known for like, like, like the handcrafted models and things like that. To me, that was always a really cool feature. But a couple, of, couple of parts were heavy CGI. Um, overall, great movie, held its own. Um, yeah, I, 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 I enjoyed it. Yeah, the wife enjoyed it. It was, it was great. Yeah,
0: I got I, that's that's next up on my list. I actually just went and saw Passengers. Like, uh, uh, let's see, like two or three days ago. It was like a, two days after it came out but uh that was that was an excellent um sci-fi movie i was i was kind of on the edge uh when i saw the trailer with some of the cues that they had in there about you know like are they going to be you know are they going to be aliens or are they going to be like how are they going to you know how's this thing going to end up but it was actually it, it it was um it was it was definitely worth seeing um it has like a good love story for anybody that likes that kind of thing but was also some good solid sci-fi in there too that was uh that was very uh very intriguing mike have you seen any do you have any tv show or movie recommendations
1: john i I don't i don't have much time to watch things i think i was telling you earlier that uh, i'm watching halt and catch fire sort of in binge mode while my uh, wife and children are visiting family back in ohio but uh (laughs) that's really about all the uh the media watching i've done as of late do you recommend it uh, it is a great show. If you were uh, if you were alive in the '80s and kind of witnessed the you know the personal PC revolution, it's uh, it's a great show to watch, and I, I think it's really well done. Just like Breaking Bad, AMC has had a couple of good uh, good series shows. Yeah, that's
0: shows. right. This, it's AMC. Very cool. All right, guys. So our topic today that we're covering is cutovers, as uh, all, all three of us work for. Uh, for resellers who do, uh, you know, project-based professional services. So I think the three of us have had a good share of cutovers in our careers. Um, I don't think everybody, you know, has a lot of experience with these types of things where they're doing large changes all at one time. But um, Derek, w- w- what is a cutover for anybody who who's listening that's not terribly familiar?
2: That's a, that's a great question. And it, I would say the answer kind of varies, but to summarize it for what we do mostly, it's... Changing the engine on an airline while it's flying over the ocean. And that's like essentially what we do day in, day out, right? I mean, some of these changes that we do are, you know, massive in scale, massive in complexity with devastating results if they go bad, right? I mean, not trying to make it sound like doom and gloom, but a lot of what we have to do is lots of planning. So I would say a cutover is really, you know, uh, uh, implementing a change or another way to look at it is is like a migration, right, from either... You know, product X or carrier A to you know something new, or you know physically moving locations, moving data from the West Coast something to the East Coast. Something that causes significant, yeah, downtime, I mean, it's, right? it's, yeah, exactly. It's something that causes significant downtime, and it can be extremely disruptive and hurtful to the business if it doesn't go well.
0: Yeah, Mike, how about you? I know you're more in the UC world than uh, than Derek and I.
1: I mean, I don't think that um, it's any different for us, right? Working in sort of more the application space and um, dealing with people's calls or or video uh, interactions versus you know network pa- that's networks at a lower level that move packets around. It, it's you know again, we're changing out one piece of technology usually for another piece of technology, and, and there's some risk or impact to the business if that doesn't go as planned or you know, go, go well from the standpoint of, uh, you know, making that move happen without downtime.
0: Yeah. Yeah. For me, a cutover is typically, uh, I, I would define it as, as some kind of significant change to the IT infrastructure that would cause some kind of downtime that's impactful to the, to the business and therefore has to be scheduled at some kind of special time where it's acceptable to them. And it's, so Derek, when do cutovers typically happen? Like, are they, are they usually, um, a certain time of the week and, you know, uh, what's sort of involved in scheduling things like these, uh, for most businesses that you've worked for.
2: Yeah. The answer is always, it depends, but generally speaking, you know, these are after hours, usually on a weekend type cutover, over, right? Cause sometimes these changes can take, you know, a day to two days to perform, whereas some changes are maybe it's five minutes. Right. And you know, it's, it's a cut over yet. You might be migrating, you know, some firewall rule or something like that. So they're, you know, generally considered lower risk. So it depends on the type of, of business and vertical they're in. But, you know, if you look at some of the main ones like healthcare, the gaming industry, manufacturing, you know, places like that, they don't really stop running, right? They're constantly gener- generating money or trying to save people's lives. So the downtime can even happen only once or twice a year. When you have stuff like that, it, it's extremely important that you plan these things out and you have all your ducks in a row. Whereas some customers, if you're making a quote-unquote cutover at a, like a remote office location that only affects maybe accounting after hours, then, hey, you start at 5 p.m. Um, and you're good to go. Another good one is I used to do a lot of work with like school districts. And for them, it was, okay, kids are out at 2.30, staff's gone by 3, 3.15, you can rock and roll and you have until... You know seven thirty the next morning to be up and running, so it just kind of depends, but generally speaking they're after hours weekend type work
0: yeah i've i've experienced the same thing um the, the really the only exception that was very strange to me when I had to do this was a casino uh that I did a cut over for where their busiest time of the of the day is is like late at night, so for them, they're like, oh yeah, our cutovers are like nine a m to like you know, or 10 a.m. to like 1 p.m. or or like in the middle of our workday, which is very strange and and awkward, which is awesome for us, (laughs) which was which is awesome for for me. But um, it was unexpected. But I realized, you know, that's their, uh, you know, 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. was sort of their their dead time. It's when nobody's really sitting at the slot machine. So it's the best time to get in there and do that. But in the middle of the night when we are typically doing cutovers is when everybody's out there gambling. Yeah,
1: and I I had the same experience too with uh, with the gaming industry when I was in the Detroit market um, and they legalized gambling in Michigan a number of years ago we started doing a lot of work for casinos and hotels that were popping up all over the place. And it was the same thing, right? During the day cutovers, which was fantastic, but you had to stay up all night to make sure everything was working well because you didn't know until the the sort of load came on um, in the middle of the night. But, you know, I think one thing for me, as I've done a lot of these, especially like in the user space and, and especially in, you know, call centers and things that are external facing from a standpoint of the business um, a weekend cutover is I think everybody's like go to for like, hey, we're putting in a new technology, let's cut it over on Friday. But that isn't always the best choice. Right. So I think on this particular point, it's like it, it, it's use the data that you have because you want to find a time to do it where you've number one got enough time to roll back if you need to. Um, but more importantly, there's the least impact to the business, right? So a Monday morning for a call center is typically the biggest, you know, heaviest time because people want to call you over the weekend as they've gone through their mail or they've seen something on TV that may drive demand into the call center. And then you get like slammed first thing Monday morning. So doing a cutover on Friday and then potentially impacting your highest volume day on Monday is your first day of production service after you're closed for the weekend may look great from the standpoint of like giving me the most time to actually do the cutover do testing and rollback but you won't know when there's problems and you're going to affect more people than if you would have done it like say on a wednesday at midnight and and probably had a tighter rollback plan you know going into a slower day on thursday morning So I, I, you know, I'm always, I'm always trying to make sure that we consider the the information we have when we're making a decision about when to do it rather than just saying like, okay, Friday is the right time to do it because it doesn't always make sense for a business.
0: Yeah. Good point. So, uh, so Mike, how do you typically prepare for a cutover? Like what kind of preparations I know for you, uh, for, you know, it's, it's going to be different for different technologies, but you know, so what sort of methodologies do do you go through that, uh, that you would, uh, that you advise somebody else in the it industry to follow as well
1: yeah so again you know kind of based on what derek said to you it's going to depend right and it depends on the customer it depends on what their tolerance for changes on the fly are if they have a change control process the most important thing to know is like what's your lead time to actually get your change in get it reviewed and get your cutover window approved so that's that's step one and that usually dictate Dictates what you're going to have to plan out to in a lot of cases because they're going to want to know what technology or what devices are involved in the change. Um, you know what, what you're actually going to do from the standpoint of configuration. Uh, if there's a rollback plan, um, all of those things are important regardless of whether the change control process dictates it or not. And I think one of the things that um, you know, people overlook in their planning is, is sort of sharing that information. As an engineer, we tend to get like a list of things together in our head that we want to do. Um, and we may write them down for the change control, but we don't often share them with the business. And I think that's one of the pitfalls of, you know, more junior engineers doing a cutover for maybe the first time is like, I didn't get agreement that these are all the things that I need to test from the business shareholders who are responsible for the operation of the business that it's impacting if things don't go well. So I think, you know, in preparation, you want to make sure you know what you're going to do, what you're going to test, and if it goes bad, how you're going to get back to the state you were in before you started the change. Um, But make sure that everybody's on the same page about that going into the cutover so that we're all, you know, in agreement of we've reached the finish line and uh we can all go home and get some sleep before we gotta get back here and support this thing in the morning.
0: Derek, how about you? How do you how do you recommend uh junior engineers prepare for you know their first cutover when they're getting ready for it?
2: Uh, I recommend you start backwards. You know what what I mean by that is knowing what your end state is. So like if your final goal is okay we migrate, you know, let's just say A to B and then um, you know, we test one, two, three, and, and that that's your end state, you know, you kind of work backwards on that, right? So I, w- I would say that when you're coming to the the actual cutover and the migration, at that point, you kind of know what's wrong. So you already have a sort of plan in place, you have a design in place, you know, it's not the time to be changing changing designs on the fly, you know, kind of going away from your original architecture design, it's, it's a time to do the actual work ahead of time, right? So you know, to me the to me the cutover and the migration is maybe only half of the project, you know, or maybe even less, right? You know, most of your time should be spent in the planning phase, having detailed scripts, um, you know, rollback procedures, testing procedures, um, escalation procedures. And actually one one important piece of information to kinda of add to what Mike said is, you know, knowing what to test is very important, but I would say almost what's even more important is Especially for us, right, because we work on a lot of different networks and we see things day in, day out, um, is actually testing before you start. And I can't tell you yeah. how many times I've done a project where you know, no one tests, let's just say, application A, and then we do the cutover and all of a sudden application A is broken. And then we waste and spend hours and cycles troubleshooting application A when it was broken for like three weeks prior, like, I mean, that just drives me absolutely crazy. So, you know, just even simple things like that. So, you know, Hey, application day is broken. Okay, fine. We'll deal with it later. And you're not chasing your tail at three o'clock in the morning on, you know, two days of no sleep.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I totally, I, I remember us talking about this before where it was, I've had people like take advantage of, you know, typically when you're troubleshooting or you're doing some kind of major change like that, they'll, they like to throw in like, oh yeah, and uh, and like I'm not receiving email, and you know, or, or or you know some other kind of application failure that they're experiencing, and and we forget to ask. Well, you know, was it working yesterday? And you could troubleshoot it for all this time, and even even solve it in the end, and realize, you know, after you've solved it, like I never touched this. This this is like this is a different part of the network, or this is some aspect that we didn't touch as part of this change. But, you know, you realize, like, hey, they kind of just
2: tossed it in there. You touched it last, so therefore you're blamed until it's guilty until proven innocent. Exactly.
1: Yeah, and it's, I mean, simply establish success criteria with your customer, right? Like, where where are you trying to get to, as Derek said? What's the end state? And and make sure everybody's in agreement so that when you reach that point, you can say, like, hey, this wasn't part of the scope. And we're going to deal with it as, you know, outside of this change. Um, and I think, it, you know, that brings up another topic that I kind of like brought up with you guys earlier is like if you're running a cutover with a defined scope and everybody's on the same page and then someone tries to jump in and take control of it and say like, hey, let's do these other things while we've got the window or can you look at this? Or, you know, in our case, um, a lot of times the things that we're doing from a cutover perspective, again, sort of in a call center environment where we've got calls coming in, we may be doing the cutover after hours. And when we call a number that comes into the call center, it says like, hey, we're closed because it's, you know, midnight. And then somebody goes, Well, I want to open up the call center and actually take a call into the you know, all the way down to an agent phone and see that it works. And it's like, we've tested all that before we got to the cutover, like we're not going to change the configuration on the call center programming to open it up because we're just introducing risk. So someone has to be in control of the cutover to make those decisions and not introduce additional risks. Um, You know, even if someone's asking for it, it's probably, you know, in their mind, a really logical course of action. But those are the things you need to get out of the way. It wasn't on our plan. We can either roll this back or, you know, we can do this another time when we've had another opportunity to test, but I'm not going to go and take this additional risk on because it's my cutover. I'm responsible for the success of it. And that's part of being, I think, you know, in charge and, you know, controlling your own destiny in that, that capacity because you can't let someone else kind of throw you to the wolves by convincing you to make a change when you're in there. You got to have control of the situation.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree. One, one of the big things that I usually like to rely on as far as, as, as far as preparation goes for some kind of cutover, is a detailed step-by-step change plan. Um, And I usually try and write them from the perspective of, um, you know, everything that I write in there, I try and write it to the detail of, could I hand this to somebody else that, you know, assumingly knows what they're doing, but doesn't necessarily know know a lot about the environment or what we're actually doing here. Can I hand it to somebody else and them be able to read through it read through the step-by-step actions and be like, okay, I get what we're doing. Like I get what this step does. I know what to test and would they be able to be successful with it? And typically some of the things I'd, I'll put into a change plan will be like uh, a list of everything that's being modified, right? So in, in all but few cutovers, we're modifying usually a, a relatively small part of the network, right? We're not going to modify everything. Um, and it's usually a handful of, uh, either devices or systems. And if we can list all of those out, then, you know, part of my process will usually be to go through and take some kind of state capture of those systems that we're actually going to change so that I can go back and look at what, uh, you know, what they were doing at the time, you know, yesterday, before we touched anything to try and troubleshoot like how it should be working now, or try and abstract some kind of information, um, what what kind of stuff do you have, you know, what kind of plans do you typically put together, Derek, um, or, or what other kinds of things do you add into to, uh, to cut over plans uh, or documentation like that?
2: Sure. Um, I think you, you're definitely, you definitely know, on the right track, right? Having those records of, of like, system state, you know, before and during is, is important. Um, also, even just things like, you know, from our side is, you know escalation paths right like who do you call if there's a problem because usually on on cutovers there's multiple teams involved you have a project manager from you know the end user side you have a project manager from the integrator side um, sometimes even two or three teams right because there could be several you know teams or towers or how you want to look at it you know waiting on the status of this of these changes to you know then further either make other changes or start testing so it's understanding the clear line of communication um you know do you call one person and that person calls the other do you have conference calls you know set up ahead of time do you have one designated person talking and the other guys doing configurations you know group chat on jabbers or or webexes um even things like you know if you're working with a lot of cisco gear is we see a lot of people open like preemptive TAC cases it's like hey you know, we're not expecting any problems, but let's open a attack case ahead of time just in case there's some weird problem or we have to do some crazy upgrade to a code. Or I mean, we, we've seen it all, right? So um, even just all that kind of stuff may, makes a huge difference in the, the overall success of the project or, or how the project is even perceived. Because we've had cases where it could ever go smoothly, but maybe it didn't go smoothly from a communication standpoint or like the business perceived it as you know, sloppy because they weren't getting updates during the change window. So there's so many different things to to keep in mind. But, you know, all of like from an engineering standpoint, it's we as engineers often forget. Right. And that's kind of where we need a, a good, strong PM to kind of balance each other out. Right. And just know, OK, who's responsible for what? Um, I think that kind of stuff goes, goes a very long way in the overall success of the project.
0: Yeah, I actually – somebody told me about the preemptive TAC cases, and and they didn't really explain it to me when they told me about it. And I kind of thought – without it explained to me, I kind of thought that, like, well, that didn't make sense because um, it actually – like, if anybody's opened and dealt with a Cisco TAC case, it actually would take longer to, like, call in and get an engineer changed around uh, on, like, an existing TAC case. But they told me the way to do it is call in – um, so take your highest risk. So if you're making like a bunch of firewall changes, then have somebody that knows, you know, uh, open a, a preemptive tat case for that firewall and have them call you like halfway through your cutover, um, like have the engineer pick up the phone and call you. And I found that to be like super helpful because, you know, take your whole timeline of, of your, your actual, um, you know, what's supposed to happen when for your cutover and, Pick a time where you think that you should really have everything. You should either have everything done and be kind of finishing up, or you're going to be in the middle of troubleshooting and you're going to be thinking about, like, you know, do we need to roll back or something? And pick, you know, that kind of time and have uh, open some kind of tack case with, uh, with a vendor of, of whatever the highest risk technology you're dealing with is and have them give you a phone call, have like the engineer pick up the phone and call you and make sure everything's going okay. Because that's an instant escalation that you can use at, you know, what would, what, what could possibly be your most desperate time during that cutover. And, and, you know, I've, I've actually, that, that, that's a, uh, I thought that that was a pretty genius thing that, um, somebody, I don't know who came up with that, but, uh, that's worked out pretty well quite a few times for me.
1: Yeah, and I think the other thing too with the the preemptive like preemptive support cases is that like it forces you to write a description of what you're doing um and put it in the case before the engineer actually gets engaged so even if you don't have somebody that's like scheduled or assigned you may be in the throes of, you know, a six hour troubleshooting exercise. And when you actually ask someone for assistance, you may not be in the best state to really explain what's happened up until that point or what the intent was of the cutover. So it kind of forces you to write, you know, arguably what should be in your change control and give that to the engineer up front. And if it's a long running, you know, support case, it may change hands from a support engineering perspective during the course of the call. So everybody kind of has the same baseline information to start with about what you're trying to do and, you know, what your end goals are as far as the the cutovers concerned.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I really I, I really like that uh, that idea that's, that's worked out well. Um, a couple other things that I'll typically put in a change plan will be uh, some kind of, some kind of written out long form notes of like a high level, Hey, this is what we're doing. Like, this is the goal of the, of the plan. And then in each step, you know, sort of breaking up your steps, trying to put in some sort of notes of like, okay, this is what we're doing here We're we're making, you know, this routing change or these firewall rules are going to do this and, and that kind of stuff. And, and after each, you know, sort of uh major change that you have in your plan, have some kind of test, you know, test and make sure that what you did is working properly before you move on. Um, And, and always note down, you know, when you're going through this thing, put in a little, you know, put in some square brackets or something to remind you to write down some notes of what you saw, or even copy and paste if you're working with some kind of command based or text based system. Um, So that you can, you you have sort of some notes, and you can even throw timestamps in there or something so that you have some um, something to look back on because a lot of times you'll get into some kind of deep troubleshooting later on and you'll be really confused as to what you even did or saw beforehand. But if you have some notes that you wrote down or some some sort of like, you know, uh, CLI output or, or, or whatever that you can look back and rely on, um, that can help out a lot. Uh, do you have do you have
2: anything like that log Derek, or Mike? log everything <laughs> oh yeah
0: definitely log everything. you, you know another that one that kind of lot. comes
2: to mind too is you know is you know, like let's just say you're doing a cutover and like you know things aren't going well for whatever reason right is knowing when to pick up the phone to call somebody i mean I can't tell you how many times I've run across people that were like either afraid to call somebody or ask for help and you know at the end of the day like you know like your teammates or your your, your vendors and your partners are there to support you right so you know, don't, you know, like give yourself a window, like say, hey, after an hour, if I can't figure this out, I got to call, you know, so-and-so who to, who to escalate to, right? So, I, you know, I think having that type of plan in place is very important because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, your goal as a team is to, you know, achieve the, the implementation, the over, right? And, you know, like, you don't want to be the guy that says, oh, I was, you know, working on this for six hours and we had to roll back because you know you, you sometimes you're just tired and you get second set of eyes i mean i can't tell you how many times it happened to me where you know, you're working like a long cutover and like the simplest thing is just like messing with your head and you pick up the phone and someone's like oh yeah you have the syntax wrong they fix it in like two seconds it's like okay great now we can get moving right so you know for especially for like the younger junior guys like do not be afraid to call or ask for help is 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 a big one
1: yeah but but make sure you do it. Like make sure you let somebody know that you may need to call them for help. Like don't, don't randomly start calling people when you haven't
2: given them a heads up that you may be That's asking. That's very good help point. They, they, they could be on PTO or, or partying in Vegas somewhere, then not in a position to really help you. And then you're back to right. square one. <laughs> yeah. You know, so
0: like you, so like you said, Derek, you know, come up with your escalation contact sheet. Right. And, and, and let those people know, Hey, you're on my list. Like I'm going to be doing this at this time. And, you know, you might get a a phone call or something. What were you going to say, Mike?
1: No, I was just kind of say kind of circling back to, you know, to what do you prep before the cutover? Um, You know, for me, like having done like some pretty large scale cutovers from a telephony perspective, and they're usually like, we've got to change a carrier or we're doing something that involves hundreds of numbers like that people know and I can't just get new numbers right so I've got to move my numbers that are published and that everybody knows to call from one carrier to another and that involves usually verifying that you know the number's been ported after the carrier says it's been ported um, and you know, amongst 50 other things that are going on is like, know what your role is as part of the cutover team, because oftentimes there's more than just yourself involved. Um, and you know, have somebody marshal sort of the call that everyone's on. Cause especially if you're not in the same room, um, you know, uh, typically what I've done in the past is like, I'm sort of in control of what's going on. I'm making a configuration change. And then I, I'm basically calling it out in a very, like, you know, like, scheduled sort of military way that like okay this change has been change number 52 has been made this number has been ported please proceed to verify and then i have someone else actually verify and the only thing that's spoken back is that verification is complete or verification has failed i don't want people talking about what they're doing over the weekend on the in the room where i'm at i don't want a lot of idle chatter and there should be a timeline associated with all the things you're doing, right? We've got an hour to cut numbers. And if we're an hour and 15 minutes into that, usually I ask the project manager to sort of keep track of where we're at from a time perspective. They're really the timekeeper. So I don't have to keep track of that. I can just focus on the changes I'm making. And their role is to really tell me, hey, we're 15 minutes past our allotted time. You know, our, our like sort of drop dead for rollback is... Three hours, so we've got only two hours and forty-five minutes left. Do we need to proceed? Do we make a, a rollback decision now? And then they—that's sort of their, their, you know, their role is to call out those points where we may need to adjust or make a decision that, hey, we we've moved past the window we've got for this, so this isn't going to go tonight.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that and that brings up actually one of, one of the most uh, what I consider one of the most important things when you're planning out a cutover is to try and break it up. Into phases or chunks um, that are independent milestones where at the end of each milestone and, and not every cutover you, you can 't you know some some if we 're doing like a full data center move and we 're you know shutting this whole thing down and bringing it all up over in one other site um, you can 't really cut that that 's one giant step that you either have to complete or not complete, but probably ninety percent of the cutovers that i 've actually um, done in my career you can break them up into smaller chunks where at the end of each like short milestone you're at you actually have a stable system that can operate for the next business day right and and that's a good milestone to keep, to if you break things up that way where even if sometimes you have to do some some work that you have to go you know walk back on you you have that milestone and you don't have to contemplate. If something goes wrong after that, you don't have to contemplate a 100% rollback. And now like, you know, you come in the next day and you've made zero progress and everything's exactly the way it was two days ago, right? You actually have made some progress and you really only have to troubleshoot getting past the next step. Um, and that's something that, that um, like you were saying, Mike, it, you'll be in the middle of some... Um, some window, and you'll be running out of time, and you have to contemplate, well, okay, do we like roll everything back, and then we have to you know we all know we have to be back here tomorrow or next week or whatever it may be, and we have to try and do everything all over again. well, you know if you can break that up into phases that at the end of each phase you have some kind of you know testing some kind of at least minimal testing and verification that okay everything's stable uh do we have time to keep on moving Are we are we on schedule or are we out of time, and if we you know if we're on time go ahead and keep moving. Or you can, you have the option right then and there to say, all right, we're going to stop for the night. We'll do, you know, phases five through 10, uh, next week, but Hey, we made good pro, you know, this might take longer than we anticipated, but we've made, you know, half of our progress tonight. We're going to make the other half next week. And we, you know, we don't have to roll everything back and try and find a longer window sometime down the line. So that's been something that's, uh, that's that I've tried to work into as many cutovers as I possibly can is that sort of milestone approach,
1: and it's uh, what- it's important too if you got people calling in to get status at intervals, right? Like you may have some business line of business managers or somebody else coming on to say, "Hey, can I do end user testing?" Jumping on a conference call like at you know ten after the hour or whatever, and it's important to say be able to say to them like, "Hey, we've reached." Step fifty-two or milestone fifty-two in this process, like you can begin testing on that, or this is where we're at. Without having to sort of explain, well, we did this and then we did this, and we had some trouble with this, and then you're really wasting time that you really is probably pretty critical to your cut over at that point.
2: Yeah, yeah. What do you think, Derek? Yeah, those are all definitely key things, and it comes down to kind of like I said, you know, having a strong PM. So, like you know, keeper of the clock. You know, generally speaking, you know, I mean, obviously you're gonna have technology issues, but time is usually your number one enemy in a cutover, right? Because, I mean, it's amazing. You think, oh, I have eight hours, it's gonna take me two, and it ends up taking you ten. And you're like, well, okay, I guess at the end of it, you know, you have a lesson learned. That's another good, kind of another key point is like every time you do a cutover, whether it went good or bad, you want to circle back with that core team and say, okay, what did we do good? What did we do bad? How can we improve? And I think you know just like everything else with experience you get better and better and after you do several dozen kind of cutovers and stuff you learn a lot about this you know like what works and what doesn't work and you know it's definitely some some fine-tuned points on what works for different people but you know generally these these kind of core concepts will work well um another one to kind of bring up too is knowing what you control versus somebody else controls right because like, let's say you're working with a large carrier or public, you know, public IP space, right, and you're making DNS changes, and it's like, okay, well, the change is instant internally, but externally, it could take hours for that stuff to propagate, right? So just even, even knowing that type of stuff will help you with your troubleshooting efforts. Um, you know, you know, Mike, you were kind of talking earlier about having some line of business come on and say, you know, can we test? Or, you know, th- the worst-case scenario is, like, they come on board and say, hey, it's not working, And it's like, well, yeah, we haven't even, like, you know, gotten to that step yet. And they're fired up about, you know, why it's not working yet. And it's like, well, you know, if you know that we're on step 53 and you can't start until step 65, then, you know, there's your problem, right? So you're trying to, like, maintain as much focus as you can on your core task versus chasing your tail and wasting that, that precious time.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I think that's a good point, right? Because it, especially for us, like when we deal with carriers, like it, it, not only knowing like where you're at in the process and like what you can control, um, but knowing what they can control from a rollback perspective too. Because at some point, if you move like if for us, if you move a phone number from one carrier circuit to another, it may take it a complete order and approval from an FCC or somewhere else to get that number back to where it originally lived. So you're kind of at a point of no return sometimes with a third party when you ask them to make a change. So, you know, again, for, for junior guys that haven't been through this, make sure you understand what the capabilities of the third parties that you're relying on are. Don't make assumptions about it. That's a critical part of your prep because you oftentimes will not think about what you can't control until it's too late.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that kind of brings up like contingency and rollback plans too, right? So that that's like that's something that I always like to try and have documented and it doesn't always have to be like a a very detailed step-by-step rollback plan because a lot of times as you go through these uh, go through steps in, in some kind of change plan, you have to go, th- you know, if you have to take a step that you didn't anticipate, and it wasn't written in there, but, you know, it's just, oh, I missed this line of code, like I need it in there, we'll add it in, so that now it, you know, your actual change plan is accurate to what you actually did, so that now you, you can kind of just reverse that for your rollback plan. And then also, you know, be honest and, and realize sometimes there is no rollback plan, right? Like, and, and, I know, just working with customers and and businesses, sometimes they really don't like to hear this. But you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna rip a whole bunch of equipment out of a out of a data center rack and cut all the cables and pull them all out and try and put everything back in in like this eight hour window, and you're like chopping all this fiber out because you you have to you have to take these you know these kind of steps to try and get it to all fit in the window. Well, there's there's no rollback from that, right? Like you're either you're gonna finish. Uh, either the way that you want, or you're going to try and like, you know, MacGyver something together at the end to make it work. But you're not, it's, you know, you have to be able to be honest with the business and tell them sometimes whenever it's true, like, once we go down this road, it's never going back to the way it was, like, it's going to some form of the new plan and like, you know, you just have to be honest and, and and realize when that might be the case. And that's kind of sounds like what uh, what you were talking so, about, reporting numbers, Mike.
1: Yeah, it, it, and definitely. I mean, in that case, like it's it's a you know, for me, a lot of times it's the third party is the point of no return when I ask them to initiate the change that we ordered from them. Um, I can't go back. But, you know, a lot of times it's um, I think, you know, when you say to the business, there's no rollback plan. Um, that oftentimes, if it's possible, should be coupled with, hey, here's some additional downtime that you could tolerate to give us an opportunity to, to actually put a rollback plan in place and execute on it if we need to. So we don't chop the fiber. We yeah. label it you know, this is some additional work or some additional cost that can be associated with it if you have the tolerance to do that, right? So you really were weighing the risk of not being able to roll back versus additional downtime that you could recover from if you needed to, um, if there's something that went wrong. And obviously, you can only do so much. But I think oftentimes when you when I do see people go, hey, there's no there's no rollback. There might have been a rollback. It just might have cost more. It might have meant yeah. additional equipment. It might have meant additional services from a carrier. Um, something. There's usually a way to work around. It's just a matter of is the cost worth the uh, you know the reduction in risk. So I, totally I think right. you know, it's important to be honest uh, on both sides of things. Is like, hey, I can do this for you, and or I can't do it for you depending on what you want to spend. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah yeah very true that's totally true right yep yeah- no, um another thing i I like to put in is uh is definitely compile all of your your up to date documentation and try and distribute it to everybody that's uh, that's at least you know that that can understand it. That's you know going to be a part of this cutover. Anybody that's going to be on the phone, even even if they're only testing and they're not doing the actual work, like you'd be surprised what people out there who work you know who work on this equipment or use it day to day may be able to reveal about some kind of troubleshooting issue that um, that you're dealing with if you provide them with sort of the you know the steps that you're going through and documentation on what this what the system looks like you know what the network looks like or how this uh, how this uh phone system is supposed to be operating those kinds of things um your your testers out in the field um can can often be very useful and um and have good insights into these things if you provide and and are and are transparent with all of your documentation and that kind of
2: stuff yeah that's a good point so like if you think about it right if you have great documentation and you're kind of opening opening that preemptive support case. It's almost like the, the, the a 2 a.m. kind of test is, you know, I think Russ White kind of coined is, you know, can you explain what you're doing to somebody with, you know, at 2 o'clock in the morning with minimal, you know, whatever you want to call it, you know, interaction, but showing them, hey, this is yeah, what like- I'm doing. And it benefits everybody, right? Because the more detailed you are, you can say, here's where we're at. Here's what it is now. Here's what it needs to look like. Here's where we are. And then, you know, usually experienced engineers can kind of look at it pretty quickly and be like, okay, yeah, this makes perfect sense. You know, let's dive into it versus having to explain your network 50 different times to 50 different people. You're going to miss key steps and get frustrated and burned out and everything kind of just falls apart after that.
1: Yeah, that's why I think that preemptive support case, that's the biggest value is having to explain that ahead of you being tired because you have a baseline for what you should be saying to people when you're asking for help.
0: Yeah, very true. You know, another another one I like to try and put together as part of preparation is any kind of, like, backdoor access. And this is typically with like network type changes where you can lock yourself out of a system, you know, you're making changes to equipment that you're relying on to get to that, you know, to other equipment that you're working on, or those kinds of things. And, and having some kind of backdoor into those systems, if if you have the ability to get in that way, um, where you, you have maybe some kind of out of band network, or something like that can be extremely useful. But a lot of times, the document, the, the information that you need to access that is sometimes, you know, it might like, Oh, you know, yeah, I have all my, like my whole like list of backdoor access uh, IP addresses is on the file server that are like, Oh, now I can't access. Cause I just like shut down, re- rebooted my switch and, and, you know, cleared the memory on it or something like that. Um, so, so compile that and have it available and, and offline on your system so that you actually, you know, you can actually access those things. I remember, um i did some work for a company uh a few years ago where all of our major data center changes where we would uh we were we would remotely go in and make like routing changes and stuff internal to the data center we would actually uh we would actually remote into like a a a, a ssh based modem in a different data center and then dial into like a serial controller Uh, in the data center that we're working in, and then make all of our, you know, sort of command-based changes through a serial controller. So there was, so we were literally accessing that whole system over, like, a POTS line and not, like, over the network itself. There was really, like, no way that we could lock ourselves out. And that was, that, like, came in super handy a lot of times when something would go wrong and we'd lose SSH access or whatever into this system. And now we have this, like, you know, this live serial connection we can just fall back to and, like, oh you know, um, we already have it up and running, I already know that it works. And, you know, that's how I can get in and fix this issue that I just, uh, you know, accidentally shut down a port that I was using to get to that switch or whatever it might be. But um, that's, that's definitely something that's been, that's been useful. um, And, and I'll usually compile that kind of information if we have it uh, before we start the change.
1: Yeah, And it's, I think it's, you know, that, that kind of goes to the point of like, know what your cutover can affect. Don't rely on things that are going to be affected by your cutover to actually execute the cutover. Cause I can't tell you how many times I've been on a call with somebody like they set up a conference bridge to sort of work on a cutover. That involved a phone system, and the main P there's 10 people in a room using a phone that relies on the phone system that they're about to take offline, and then they take (laughs) it offline, and the call drops, and then everyone panics, right? Like they don't know, everybody's cell phone starts ringing, and like everyone's in panic mode, and like you really just took time away from your cutover. So if you need to, like at step five, go, We're switching to cell phones, everybody down back into the bridge, right?
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's funny. John, to kind of your point, like, you know, from like an engineering style, there's nothing scarier when you're, you know, you're hammering away, you're making config changes, you're, you're SSH into a box, and you're making, like, let's just say BGP changes, right? And then you hit enter after you make a change, and your terminal freezes, and you're just like, oh God, you know, did I lose, connect- did I lose connectivity? Is it yeah. re- reconverging? And then either you get the session timed out panic mode, or, okay, it, it came back. But yeah. Always check your out-of-band access. Always check your modem. And even more importantly, always know how far away the closest person is to that box. I mean, you know, every yeah. once in a while, you never know. You have to do kind of throw this Hail Mary, and it's like, hey, you know, so-and-so, you got to drive to the office and power cycle this box because it's hung or crashed or whatever, right? failed during an upgrade. Right. I mean, every once in a while, that stuff still happens, right? So, like, remote hands, a fee on the street, don't count them out. <laughs> Absolutely. Any other uh, guys
0: any other uh, notes that you have on uh, on you know another thing that I, I actually wrote up um, is um, in in whatever kind of documentation that you put together and publish, especially to the business if you're putting in some kind of like uh, change request into into a change management system is publish the anticipated impact but also the possible impact right so so tell them you know okay, we expect like for two hours. Uh, you know this certain email is going to be offline because we 're modifying whatever that affects the email systems but but also let them know well, you know, but at the same time we 're also sort of making routing changes to our global routing table, and it 's possible that like the whole data center might go offline like you know it 's always good to you know throw in there like what if if something goes uh something goes awry that maybe even you 're not expecting what what could the blast radius of this effect uh, what could you actually affect with these changes right and and this is sometimes a scary thing to throw out there but if it happens um which it's it's like if if you're a junior engineer and you're making cutovers on somewhat of a regular basis it's going to happen to you you know you're going to take down you know a, a system that you did not plan to that everybody that, that everybody absolutely needs at that moment and if you had, you know, if you had mentioned like this is not anticipated, but is possible just based on the scope of changes we're making, then at least you've notified, you know, the business that this could happen, even though you don't expect it to. And it's not completely out of the blue. Somebody was notified about it, right? It was documented somewhere and you weren't completely silent about it. And that's, that's something I've always, um, I've tried to put in is, is, is list out your anticipated impact for the changes that you're making, but also, in a worst-case scenario, the possible impact that it could have.
1: So really what you're looking for is the prescription drug commercial warning that says, like, <laughs> common <laughs> common side effects include two-hour exactly. two email outages, but in some rare cases, total data center failure has been reported. <laughs> it's <laughs> exactly. always a safe
2: bet to say CYA is what it's about.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, to some extent, but yeah. It's, um, it, it, definitely helps, uh, save your bacon if it does, when it does happen because it will, but it's also, you know, it also lets them know that you're keeping in mind the kind of impact that your changes, that you're trying to be mindful and it makes you look a lot better in the end when the anticipated impact happened, the possible impact didn't, it gives uh, everybody in that business more confidence in your ability because now, you know, you've, you've sort of warned them about something that you said you didn't expect to happen and now it didn't happen. And and that's uh you know that that I think that builds a lot of confidence in in business executives that might review these kinds of changes. So, Derek and Mike, anything else that you
1: guys care to add in? So, the only other thing I wanted to add um was just make sure you know, Again, this is probably more for the junior guys than anybody else, but make sure you know if anybody else is changing anything during the same window you are, right? So not only know what you're affecting, but know what somebody else can potentially be affecting because if somebody's making a network change and all of your applications that you're working on um, ride on that network, you don't want to suddenly go, oh crap, what did I do? When you really didn't do anything, somebody took the network offline that your server was connected to or, you know, something of that nature. So, so just be cognizant of, of things happening around you, too. I think that's a common pitfall of, of more junior engineers without a lot of experience doing cutovers is that they don't ask the question, is there anything else going on during the window that we plan to do this change? Derek, what were you going to say?
2: No, I was going to say just, you know, kind of wrap up, you know, stick to what, you know, stick to your plans. Um, you know, cause usually when you write those plans, you have a very kind of clear thought, you can take some time, put them together. Once that trouble window starts, you're going to be again against the clock, right? And you're going to make cowboy decisions. And if you come back to your plan and stick to it, that's, that's, your, that's the, your, best case scenario, right? So, um, stick to it, have a good plan. Don't be afraid to escalate. And, uh, once you get once you get a couple under your belt, your confidence goes way up and then they become, you know, easier and easier over time. Definitely.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. And yeah, any any sort of cowboy decisions because there's always changes to the plan that you that you didn't really anticipate that you have to make, but but add them in, right? I mean, even like you know if you're doing like you know, like a, a, a lot of times I'm working on like Cisco equipment. And if you're doing like iOS commands on a router, or a switch script them out in your, in your change and then copy and paste rather than just trying to bang them out on the actual CLI. And then you already have it documented in right. And, and save your plan and, and, uh, um, in the past, I've actually used a lot of t- like te- just regular text-based change plans. I'm trying to move that over to, uh, to like a markdown based, uh, system that's, you know, a little bit, uh, a little bit easier on the eyes and that kind of thing. But, um, you know, have, have something that works for you and that is readable by other people, but, um, you know, always note down those changes to the plan that are on the fly, you know, as you're putting in notes of what's happening at that time, because it's, it's, crucial to have that kind of information when you have you know a root cause analysis later on you know a couple days later after you know the uh the fallout has occurred and and everything's fixed and they're trying to figure you know everybody's meeting in the in the giant meeting room trying to figure out why you know everything went down at such and such a time while you were working on it it's it's good to have those kinds of notes so let's uh let's go around the table and uh uh, let's close this out. Derek, uh, what do you, what are you doing this week and how can people find you
2: this week? I'm going to be on a beach in Hawaii. So yeah, so I won't be, I won't be blogging or posting much, whatever. So I'll be kind of offline, um, kind of winding down 2016, recharging for 2017 to, uh, hit the ground running hard. So, I'll uh, be kind of back up and running in a few weeks, mostly sweet. Mike, how about yourself?
1: So just trying to close the year out strong this week, I think, and, uh, you know, take care of some business while we still can in, in 2016. And, uh, hopefully I find some time to, to tweet or write a blog post uh, along the way. You know, is, is it's typically a little slower from a business standpoint in this last week of the year. Uh, but if you're looking, you can find me on Twitter at my last name, A O S S E Y or at Aussie.net, uh, same spelling. Cool. And, uh, i will uh i'm I'm
0: sort of doing the same thing as you mike it's kind of a slow week i'm trying to make sure that all of the ducks are in a row for the year end there's a there's a whole lot of stuff happening on the back end of the business in the year end and that's stuff i have to pay attention to now but uh uh, i'll likely be uh doing some tweeting and i'm probably going to be putting a uh uh, blog post together about cutovers and and uh you know going over and writing out some of these steps and and providing some sort of template documents and things like that probably pretty soon uh, possibly this year but uh yeah that's that's what i'll be doing so uh guys thank you for your time and uh this should be uh episode 10 coming out on uh the 29th and uh Derek have a good time in Hawaii right on good to see you guys it's been a while enjoy the
1: beach thanks for listening everybody
0: yeah bye guys there's somebody posted on Twitter some Uh, video of of Kelly Slater surfing like a coffee table on a wave like riding a coffee table down a wave that guy's amazing man Anytime people complain that their failure is due to their tools, just send them this video of Kelly Slater surfing on a table. <laughs> That's crazy. He's
1: not a human being. He's a cyborg. <laughs> That's true. You guys are mad. He's, he's, he
2: can do anything.